So, the title of this talk is Beware Ideology. And uh, if you don't know what ideology is, I'll explain it in a minute. Yeah? But um, when I was thinking about this talk, as often happens to me, I began thinking about this film that's been around for a few years now called The Matrix. Now, I notice that some people are smiling here because I often, I often quote from The Matrix. And uh, well, I, think, I think that's because it's full of such great allegories, actually, for the spiritual path. So, um, the bit that I was thinking about, well, I suppose what I'll do is I'll tell you a little bit about the story. So, who, who's seen The Matrix in this room, just so I have an idea? So, there's some people who haven't seen The Matrix. My <laughs> goodness. That's disgraceful. <laughs> so, for the benefit of those who haven't heard, yeah, in it there's a chap called Neo. He's played by Keanu Reeves. So, that might tempt some of you to watch it, I don't know. And basically, he's convinced that there's something not quite right about the world, yeah? At a certain point, there's this kind of, there's this idea of a bit of a splinter, yeah? There's a splinter in his existence that doesn't quite make sense. And he meets somebody called Morpheus, yeah? Now, Morpheus means change. And Morpheus offers him the choice. He holds two pills out in his hand and he says, I can show you what this splinter's all about. Yeah? I can show you what reality is. Yeah? I can show you, I can give you all the answers. Yeah? But if you want the answers, you must take one of these pills. Now, which one is it? Is it the blue or the red? I can never remember. Well, it doesn't matter, really. Yeah? You, have to read, you have to watch the film to find out. So, he offers him the chance. Now, basically, what happens is, is if he takes one pill, he'll go back to his old way of living and he'll forget that he's ever met this chap Morpheus and some mad things have happened in the interim. If he takes the other pill, he will be shown reality. Now, it wouldn't make a very good film, would it, if he chose the kind of the boring option? So, so thankfully, he chooses the option, which leads to kind of what I think is a really, really good film. So what is it that he sees when he takes this pill? Now, it's a very sort of pessimistic worldview, actually. Fortunately, I think if we took that pill in a Buddhist context, we'd see something much more positive than what Keanu Reeves sees. Yeah? Anyway, well, so what is it that he sees? Well, he sees that the life that he's been thinking that he's been leading is just a dream. Yeah? In fact, it's something generated by computers. Yeah? So why on earth would they do this? Well, what, what, what Neo realises is, is that the machines have turned him and all of humanity into a giant machine. So his body is being used as a battery. Yeah? And he's surrounded by a number of other batteries. And this sort of massive cell, as it were, is powering the machine world. And what the machines do to keep their batteries as good batteries is to fill them full of a dream world where they think they're participating uh, in their lives. Yeah? But actually, the reality of their situation is they're just a battery for this big, great big machine. So, like a lot of the things in the Matrix, yeah, this is an allegory, actually. An allegory means it's saying one thing, really, but it's pointing to a truth, perhaps. Something, another story besides, yeah. Because I wonder, really, if we really, really think about this image, how much of a fantasy is it? Is there any truth in it? Surely we're individuals, yeah? Surely we think for ourselves, 
Yeah, surely we're not just part of this great big machine, as it were, and we're not quite aware of what's really going on. You know, this is what, this is how we sort of order our reality, isn't it? We we believe in that. Yeah, but I wonder, you know, how true is that? Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, I turned to good old Bante Sangharachita. He's full of great quotes, uh, and here's a quote from uh, Who Is the Buddha? Very very good book. And he's talking about this idea of us as an individual. So I'll read this out. Yeah, this is Sangharachita pulling no punches at all. Statistically, numerically, we may be individuals. But very, very few of us are individuals in a psychological and spiritual sense. Most people are simply not sufficiently aware to be classed as real individuals. So when Buddhists talk about going beyond the self and realising the truth of non-self, they're talking about something that is quite out of the question for most of us. Most of us have not even developed a self yet, never mind realising the non-self. So anyway, he gets on to the bit that, um, this is sort of the really relevant bit there, I found the other bit interesting. So what he says is, if one has not developed a self that is distinguishable from a group mentality, if one's self is little more than an amorphous, that means kind of shapeless, mass of conditionings, if one has not yet learned to be truly oneself, then nothing is really there to transcend. So it's quite provocative that, isn't it really? Yeah, quite stirring, uh, in fact. Yeah, as I've said, we like to think that we're individuals. Yeah? that we think for ourselves, that we have free will. Yeah? And that, that's how it appears to us, doesn't it? Yeah? It sort of appears to us, at least when we're aware enough, it appears to us, I'm choosing to have this can of Diet Coke, for instance. Yeah? It, it appears to be that way, doesn't it? But you know, it appears also that, we, that our thoughts are our own, that we're generating them. Now actually, when we start to meditate, we realise that that's not strictly true anyway. I'm sure everybody in this room has already realised that. If thoughts are our own, then surely we ought to be able to turn them off, to choose what thoughts we have. Well, that's not the case for me, and I know it's not the case for a lot of people in this room. Yeah? So, how can we develop a self, that's in Sangharachita's words, distinguishable from group mentality, free from the amorphous mass of conditionings? Yeah? So it's very, very important that we do this. Yeah? Some of you will be familiar with the first verse from the Dharmapada, which says, with our mind, we make our world. Yeah? So it's very, very important that we try and get our minds to be our minds, yeah? as it were, rather than kind of taking on things from everywhere. Yeah? So I suppose what I want you to remember with this talk is that the Dharma is radical. You know, it's a very, very radical thing indeed. I know there's a lot of new people in here, and in a way, we'll all be kind of taking from the Dharma what we need at the moment. But if you carry on practicing, you carry on practicing for a long, long time, well, it's, the Dharma gets more and more radical. Yeah? So we need to break away from what we might call the group mentality. Yeah? We need to test out the Dharma. And we need to experience the Dharma for ourselves, yeah? We need to experience the true perspectives that the Dharma offers us on life, yeah? And we need to do this because our views, yeah, the views that we have on the world, they affect 
everything. Yeah? With our mind, we make the world. With our views, we make the world. Yeah? You could equally say that. Yeah? All of our actions, pretty much, possibly with the exception of, kind of real kind of autonomic reflex actions, yeah? all of our actions stem from our views. Yeah? There's a view about the world underneath all of our actions. Yeah? So we better be careful about the views that we take on yeah, in society. And this is very clearly demonstrated in Sangharachita's book, Vision and Transformation, about the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? So I'm not going to go into the Noble Eightfold Path particularly, I haven't got time, but basically the first limb, or the first stage of the Noble Eightfold Path is the stage of right view. Yeah? And that is getting clear intellectually, as it were, how the world works. Yeah? And then that stems all the way up to perfect vision, which we would call insight, even enlightenment. Yeah? So the path starts off with right view. Yeah? This is the path of vision. And everything else, yeah, the other seven limbs of the path, are transformed in the light of that increasing movement towards perfect vision, starting with right view. Yeah. So what we can say is, yeah, without right view, there's no lasting transformation. Yeah, we might change for a little bit, but actually it's only when we start to see the world more the way it is that this transforms our emotions, our actions, etc. Yeah. But there's a problem, a very big problem, uh, unfortunately. And that is that as well, as the Buddha says in the Pali Canon, yeah, we live we inhabit, we live in a culture of, well, it's a thicket of views. This is what the Buddha says. So a thicket is a, a dense growth of plants, yeah? And there's little space, yeah? It's claustrophobic in there, if you can sort of fit in, yeah? It's possibly full of thorns and spikes, yeah, and stingers, yeah? And this is the society that we live in, yeah? The views of society... Not all of them are in line with the Dharma, uh, by a long way. Yeah. So I suppose sort of to change the metaphor a little bit, it's a little bit like we're, we're little fishes swimming in a sea of ideology. Yeah? So I'm going to define that word for you now, because I've used it a couple of times. Yeah? And so the ideology surrounds us like the water to a fish. Yeah? It even gets inside into our, into our gills, if you like. So what's ideology? I've used this word a few times. Well, it's a relatively new word. It's been around since 1796, apparently. And it comes from the Greek idio, which means of ideas, and logi, science of. So it started off as the science of ideas. Yeah. Now, by the mid-1800s, Karl Marx was using ideology in a very, very sort of different way. Yeah. And... He was using it by that time, so it was a kind of scientific thing to start off with, seemingly objective. Marx started to use it as a false consciousness. Yeah? So ideology became a false consciousness. And it was the false consciousness spread by the aristocracy at the time to make the uneven distribution of money seem fair, seem the way things were. Yeah? So obviously the aristocracy had all the money, the poor people had very, very little, and the aristocracy spread an ideology, as it were, spread some views, opinions, out into society 
to make it seem that because they were of blue blood, this was fair. Yeah? So it starts to take on a kind of pejorative or negative sense ideology around about 50 years after the term came along. So gradually it's become more and more neutral and probably some of you in this room will be familiar with um, the more modern sense of the term ideology which means differing political opinions basically. Yeah? So the Tories have a particular ideology yeah? and the Labour have a particular ideology uh, even though it's very difficult to tell them apart these days, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to, as it were, look at ideology. Um, I'd like to kind of take it back to its more sort of radical kind of Marxist meaning, yeah, as a false consciousness. So I'd like to, for the purposes of this talk, I'll define it like this. Yeah. So ideology is the system of values, ideas and images in society which strongly conditions or even entirely creates our world view. Yeah, I'll say that again. The system of values, ideas and images in society which strongly conditions or even entirely creates our world view. And what we could have in brackets there is depending upon our levels of awareness. Yeah? So only an enlightened being will be completely free of the pull of ideology. Yeah? we'll all be pulled by it to varying degrees. If we've got a sort of higher level of awareness, we'll probably be less pulled by it. Yeah? So I just want to make clear, because in a way I'm going to be kind of looking more at the sort of negative ideologies in society as stuff to look out for. Obviously not all the values, ideas and images of society are non-dharmic. Yeah? In fact, you know, since, say, Victorian times, there's been quite a lot of progress, hasn't there, in terms of ideologies within society. I think kind of, yeah, just in terms of sort of equality of the sexes, yeah, racial equality more and more so, um, the way that we treat children nowadays, yeah, we don't send them up chimneys anymore, do we? There's been a change of ideology there, hasn't there, for the better, certainly much more in line with the Dharma. Uh, we've got much more of an equality of sexual preference nowadays, Oscar Wilde got put in prison for being homosexual, nowadays you know, much more in line with the Dharma, I think, kind of society's attitudes to that. We've also got things like the minimum wage, there's a lot less homelessness, etc. Yeah? So it's not that kind of all ideologies are bad or, or sort of stuff to look out for, but the fact is, is that there's a lot in society that can influence us negatively, yeah? can distort our perspective and can lead us away from the Buddha's advice yeah? into this kind of thicket of views. So... Just to start off with, I'd like to have a look at what is, according to Buddhism, right view. What sort of views can we, according to Buddhism, rely on? So, basically the answer is, we can rely on the Dharma. Yeah? Now, obviously, we need to test that out for ourselves, etc. And I'll be going into that later. But according to Buddhism, right view is the Dharma. And interestingly enough, probably not all Buddhism is right view, which is a bit kind of spooky, isn't it? Yeah? There's a number of things about Buddhism, if you look throughout the world, um, that actually isn't in line with the Dharma. Yeah? Obviously, the Dharma is the truth teaching. Yeah? Buddhism is how that is translated into groups 
that gather around the Buddha's teachings. Yeah? So we need to be careful. The Dharma is what we can rely on. Buddhism isn't what we can rely on. Yeah? So right view would be in line with the Dharma. So we'll just very quickly look at the three Lakshanas, yeah? because Vidyamala touched on them last week. So it will be some revision for you if you heard it before. So according to the Dharma, yeah, right view is that this conditioned existence that we share yeah, has three marks, yeah, three features, as it were. The first one is that everything is impermanent. Yeah? Everything is impermanent. No exceptions. Not even the soul the size of the thumb, yeah? like the Hindus thought uh, two and a half thousand years ago. Everything is in a state of flux. The next lakshana is that everything is insubstantial. Yeah? If nothing has a kind of fixed essence, if everything's just process, as it were, then there really are no things at all. Yeah, that sounds a bit mad, doesn't it? But it's a little bit like what we see when we look at uh, an apple, as it were, is we see this sort of object. And there's something about our response to it where we kind of, we see it as a stable entity. But actually, from the perspective of enlightenment, it's just something in process. And if we leave it in the fruit bowl for three weeks, we, we get the evidence for ourselves, don't we? It's gone rotten. Yeah? The third lakshana, because we can't quite see these two things, or because we understand them intellectually maybe, but not emotionally, not with the whole of our being, this causes us suffering. Yeah? Because we relate to things like they're permanent or they're fixed. Yeah? We fix ourselves as a stable entity and then we define ourselves against other people. Yeah? This is what causes us suffering. Yeah? So this is one of the many examples, and you can go to many different lists within Buddhism, etc., of what we'd call right view. And I'm gonna, I've pulled those three out on purpose, really, because I'm going to look at kind of consumerism. I'm just going to touch on that for a little bit and compare it to right view, the right view of the three lakshanas. So the enlightened mind, we can guess, as it were, sees each moment as it is, probably. Yeah? Sees each moment as it is, unfiltered through what we might call the ego, yeah? this false sense of a substantial self. However, I'm sure most of us, uh, we might have brief moments of that, but perhaps the majority of our existence is a little bit different. Because yeah? the unenlightened mind... yeah sees each moment mediated by or monitored through at our worst perhaps yeah a hungry insatiable agitated easily wounded ego yeah at our worst yeah we do have moments don't we of kind of relative peace and joy and freedom and lightness and things like that but if you're anything like me it's not long before something will come up as it were to to stir that wounded ego uh, into action. Yeah? So a couple of things can happen, can't they? It's like the ego feels a bit of a lack. Yeah? So it grabs, it clings, it tries to accumulate yeah? to temporarily cover up that wound. I mean, this is, in a way, this has been quite harsh uh, on the ego, but I think that's what happens, actually, if I'm being brutally honest. <laughs> it is, at least, when I observe my own. You make your own minds up. Either that or the ego feels irritated or threatened, so it pushes off something unpleasant. It becomes hostile and aggressive. Yeah? So that's if there's something 
pleasant that it wants or painful that it doesn't want. The other thing that the ego does is it mistakes this wonderful present moment for something neutral and dull and gets bored. That's how we kind of respond to a neutral situation. Yeah. So either, either way, the ego gets it wrong from the perspective of enlightenment. Yeah. So the journey towards right view, we might say, uh, is the journey towards accepting that the world's in flux, yeah? that the world's impermanent, that what we think of is, as me is much more fluid than that. Yeah? Or it could be if we stopped fixing ourselves, much more interconnected. Yeah? So this is the path of vision that I've spoken about in the Noble Eightfold Path. So the more that we do this, the more that we enter the path of transformation. Yeah? We transform these emotions arising out of ignorance to emotions arising out of wisdom. Our speech, our actions, etc. transform in the light of this. Yeah? This is the path. So if we do this, we start letting go of the futile attempt to control the present moment. Yeah? We begin to relax, not tighten. We begin to accept, not resist. We begin to embrace, not push away. And we begin to enjoy, not suffer. Yeah? This is the idea. But the problem is, is that so much of the ideology, yeah, this thing, the values and ideas within society that condition us, so little of it really has to do with right view. Yeah? And so much of it is rife with what we might call, yeah, or they call in the Dharma, upside-down views. Yeah? So there's four of them here. So these are called the four viparyasas. Yeah? And they're the four upside-down views, or what I like less, mental perversities. Sounds a bit kind of dodgy, doesn't it? Like you might get locked up for it. But it's it, upside-down views we'll say for tonight. So what happens is, is that a lot of the views in society, they see what is inherently unsatisfactory and frustrating. And I'm talking about from an ultimate perspective here. Yeah? There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting a new CD or something like that. Yeah? It's fine. Yeah? I'm not down on that. You know, it's great. We, we need to have some fun. But it's what we invest in it. Yeah? Do we sort of see it as something that's going to make us happy? Yeah? Is there, are there not other things that could do the job better for longer? Yeah. So an upside down view would be to see the unsatisfactory as satisfying. Yeah. And a lot of society is based around this, I'm afraid. Uh, a lot of society relates to what is impermanent yeah, as permanent. What is insubstantial as substantial. Yeah? So you'll notice these are the three lakshanas, as it were, flipped on their heads. And then there's one added for good measure. Yeah? A lot of the ideologies of society see what is, and this is from the point of view of enlightenment, yeah. This is compared to following the path of enlightenment, something really, really worthwhile, something that's going to last, yeah? These objects that society kind of holds up, well, they're ugly compared to enlightenment, yeah? But what a lot of the ideology of society says is, oh, they're really beautiful, you should buy them, or whatever, yeah? So let's have a look, little look at consumerism, yeah? And you can spot an ideology if it's got an ism on the end of it normally, which is interesting, isn't it? Because Buddhism's got an ism on the end. So what are we going to make of that? Well, we'll have a little bit more about that later on. So I'm not going to go into this stuff a lot, really. Um, if we have time at the end, I'd like to get into discussion groups after the break. So consumerism, yeah? 
Around about 150 years ago, when Karl Marx was writing all his things about false consciousness and ideology, yeah, hardly anybody had any possessions, really, above the very sort of basic necessities. Yeah? Now the prevalent worldview, the view that we're all, all of us, in the middle of, little fish kind of swimming inside, as it were, almost, yeah? the prevalent worldview is that we need a succession of peak fashion items yeah, to make us good enough, yeah, to make us happy. And what tends to happen when I sort of observe society and when I cringingly look at some of my habits still, I'm afraid, because it's so hard to get out of this stuff, yeah, we build our identity out of not what we truly are, yeah, not what's sort of lasting and amazing within us, if we could only see it, yeah, but we build our identity out of this kind of identity kit of stuff, yeah, that we add on to ourselves, yeah, that defines us, defines who we are. Yeah. So let's imagine kind of going out to get a consumerist item. Yeah, you, you choose your own one, choose choose your own particular poison, your own tipple, as it were. Yeah. What can happen is is that well, it's a little bit like we get a craving for something, probably, yeah. We get a craving for something. And it may well be that, you know, you've heard of this term shopping therapy, haven't you? <laughs> Probably, yeah? It's like we feel a little bit kind of crap, yeah? Something's not quite right. Something's a bit sort of unsatisfactory. Hmm. So we go out to buy something, maybe. Maybe this is what we do, maybe not, I don't know. And we see something in the shop, and even though enlightenment is so beautiful... And so worthwhile and insight so great. It's a little bit like we kind of push that to the side for a while, maybe. And we see that object as really, really beautiful for a while, yeah? We, and it's, it's mad, isn't it? Because kind of rationally, we probably know that it's not going to make things better. But it's more of an emotion. It's more of a sort of an emotional response to it. It's like some little wound in us, perhaps, wants to get covered up. Wants to kind of, oh, just alleviate me for now, or something like that. So what we're doing really is we're relating to something that from the point of view of insight, as it were, is inherently unsatisfactory. It might be a quick fix, but it's not going to last. Yeah? We're relating to it as it's, satis- as it's satisfying. It's, it's going to help me. Yeah? But we all know probably it's just a short-term measure. Yeah? And we're relating to what's impermanent. Yeah? How many things have you bought that you really, really loved exactly the same six months later? Yeah? Or how many things sort of end up in the attic or the wardrobe or, you know, at the back of the CD pile or whatever, yeah? So we're identifying with something as if it will give us permanent happiness, yeah? But really it's impermanent, yeah? We're identifying as if it's got real substance, yeah? That it's really going to last, that we can rely on it, that it's a rock, but it's really insubstantial. So in Buddhism, of course, what we say is that we can rely on the three jewels. Yeah? We can rely on the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. They're not going to let us down. Yeah? If we engage with them, yeah, we will move towards ever and ever kind of more expanded and satisfying states of beings. Yeah? But what consumerism does, as it were, is it holds up its sort of objects, its mass-produced goods, as it were, as the three jewels. So it's very, very important to sort of have a look at 
Look at what we do and how we relate to consumerism. Are we taking on those views? Yeah? Or are we trying to move beyond them? Yeah? And I was thinking a little bit about that's the kind of craving side of things, but what about the aversion side of things? Well, I don't know if you've noticed this. And I don't watch telly very much these days, but whenever I do, when I go to the cinema particularly, I notice that all the adverts are about doing something that hurts somebody else, as it were, and then feeling really good about it. Yeah? And I noticed this on TV as well. You've got, like, Anne Robinson on The Weakest Link, haven't you? And it's like, I'm sure a lot of people tune into that because they really, really enjoy seeing Anne Robinson being horrible to the person who's lost. You've got these adverts on Wicked Beer, haven't you, where, like, somebody stitches somebody up and they're really cool. Yeah? So... It seems like there's this sort of ideology out there in society at the moment, particularly on TV and kind of sitcoms and stuff like that. It's something about kind of get yours, yeah, be on top, yeah, strike before the other person, yeah. And, well, what's all this about? Well, I think everybody has what Sanger actually calls a quantum negativity, yeah, a sense of negativity inside, and it's a little bit like when we watch these things, we can have an outlet for it. Yeah? When, we see, when we see the person on the film getting beaten up who's done something, like he's a parking inspector or something like that, yeah? what it allows us to do is we, we have a moment of kind of release where we're kind of identifying with our frustrations, maybe from when we've had a ticket or something like that. Yeah? So there's a lot of this sort of ideology around in society which actually, I think, encourages the negativity within and we need to be careful because what we could think is, well, everybody else is watching it and, yeah, it must be all right. But actually, what effects are, it ha- you know, are these things having on us? Yeah, it's just worth bearing in mind, yeah? Do you want to think for yourself or do you just want to go along with the herd? That's the thing. So we need to be really, really careful, I think, about what we're unconsciously taking on from the group. Yeah? We need to be able to distinguish right view from this sort of false consciousness. Yeah, to recognise what we can really rely on and what will eventually let us down. But it's really, really hard. Yeah, this is so hard. And you know, I struggle with it myself. You know, I'm really, really aware of what I need to do, but it's so hard to kind of break free from this conditioning. So ideology is very hard to break free from. Yeah? Well, why? Because it's all pervasive. Yeah? We're constantly bombarded with ideology by the cinema, by novels, by TV, by adverts, etc. Yeah? It's all around us. And it's so kind of all pervasive that it appears as common sense. This is the thing. We're born into it, aren't we? We're born into a world where kind of people go out shopping to relieve stress, for instance. Yeah? So if everybody else is doing it, then it becomes very, very sort of enticing, doesn't it, for us to do it. And I just want to sort of, I just want to, to demonstrate really how hard it is to break free from ideology. And what I'd like to do is I would like to take us back to an ideology that was prevalent, certainly in the Victorian era and for quite a while before. So it's the ideology of imperialism yeah, or colonialism. Yeah? This ideology basically involved going to other countries and taking them over and, you know, invading them, draining their resources, turning people into slaves often, and killing them if they wouldn't bow down to our God. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this seems pretty mad to us now, doesn't it? You know, a hundred odd years on or whatever, it seems pretty mad, doesn't it? But, you know, what ideology allowed this? Yeah. So, those of you who have read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, yeah, it's a very, very good kind of exposition of this. Yeah, the, the ideologies that kind of allowed people to invade these other countries were, well, firstly, carrying the light into darkness. Yeah, carrying the light of God. This was the sort of the superficial reasons. Yeah, and progress. Yeah, the Victorians couldn't stand the idea that somewhere in a foreign country people were walking around in the nude. Yeah, it offended them. So they wanted to carry their kind of steam engines and clothes, etc., out there. They couldn't bear the fact that people thought differently out there. So in a way, this was the false consciousness that allowed that sort of thing. But what was the real reason? Well, the real reason was the trickle of ivory and treasures to Her Majesty. Yeah? So the ideology which allowed it was, oh God, we've got to kind of, you know, we've got to spread God's word and clothe these beasts and, you know, etc. Yeah? Actually, the real reason was money. So this really seems mad to us now, doesn't it? But you know, and this is a really, really important point, so I want you to sort of really listen to this. You know, how would we have been if we were born in that time? Would we have had the awareness or the individuality, yeah, to stand alone? To speak out, yeah, against our family, against our workmates, our friends, the politicians, yeah, even the priest in the pulpit, yeah, even the person that we turned to for religious guidance would have been probably kind of praising this ideology. So would we? You know, so my point is, it's all very well thinking that we're aware of the ideologies of modernity, of this present moment. Yeah. But people were suckered a hundred years ago. We might be being suckered now. Yeah, it's a very important point. Ideology is invisible, yeah? It is very, very, very hard to see. So don't assume, because you're sort of intelligent beings in this room, that you can spot all the ways that you're being conditioned by society. Yeah? Historians, historians' job in a way is to sort of look back and laugh at how people used to live. And we'd be really stupid, wouldn't we, if we were, if we were to think that we were exceptions to that, Yeah? 100, 200 years later, people are going to be looking at the ideologies that we're getting suckered into and they're going to be laughing. This has happened all throughout history. So it's very, very important. Yeah? And it's also no wonder that we're confused. Yeah? We've got our parents telling us one thing. We've got our friends telling us another. We've got Buddhism making suggestions that are complete opposite to some of those, I imagine. We've got Jordan telling us other things yeah we've got people who are action heroes on tv so they must be authorities on reality we've got footballers yeah we've got pop stars telling us sort of things and but what the heck do we believe in you know this is really really hard isn't it we've looked at right view and we've looked at upside down views but what do we believe in so believe me this isn't a new problem it's been around since the time of the buddha and beyond i'm sure and apparently in the time of the Buddha, in the Pali Canon anyway, there was a group of people called the Kalamas. And they were getting so confused about how to practice. They were getting so confused because the Brahmins were saying one thing, the Shramaneras or the shaved ones, as it were, they were saying another. 
maybe some of the Buddha's own disciples were saying something different. Yeah? So they came to the Buddha and they said, they said, look, what the heck can we believe in? Yeah? And they're talking particularly, obviously, in relation to practices, but we can apply this across the board. Yeah? So what does the Buddha say? Well, he gives ten things not to believe in. I'll just list them, yeah? Now, he says, now Kalamas, yeah? Do not go by hearsay. Do not go by so-called truths handed down in a tradition. Do not go by rumour. Do not just believe blindly the scriptures, whatever they are. Do not go by brilliant arguments. Do not go by inferring. Do not go on an opinion, don't believe in it just because you've reflected on it for a long, long time. Do not believe in something just because you're inclined to that opinion or because it seems likely. Yeah, And certainly don't believe in it just because some impressive religious person says it. Yeah, So the Buddha's pretty radical there, isn't it? Then he says, but Kalamas, when you know yourselves, these teachings are not good. They're blameworthy. They're scorned by the wise. These teachings, when followed out and put into practice, conduce to suffering, reject them. Yeah. So there's quite a lot there, really. But what we could do is we could boil it down to this. Yeah. Don't believe stuff because you've heard it outside of yourself. Yeah. Even from somebody who's an impressive religious person. Yeah. Very, very difficult, isn't it? And then the second thing, don't believe something just because you've thought it. You can't rely on your thoughts. Interesting that, isn't it? And he proposes two things, to get into dialogue with the wise. Now, what the wise is, is a whole other story, really. But I imagine it's something about it. Well, it's people who, we look at their life, we listen to what they say, and we're impressed by how they're living it. I think for us, particularly within the sort of Buddhist circles, I would have thought. Yeah, so get into dialogue with the wise, yeah, but this is the important thing. But ultimately, know for yourself, yeah? Don't think, no. And Vidyamala last week, she went into the, these three levels of, of wisdom, didn't she? It starts off with hearing something, we then reflect on it, and then we meditate on it and we know. Yeah? Until we get to that stage where we know that everything's impermanent, yeah? we don't know. We need to know. We need to know with our whole being. That needs to be our response to the world. When our car breaks down, ah, just another manifestation of impermanence. Yeah? <laughs> Pretty tough, hey? <laughs> So, all right, you know, that's all quite sort of don't do this, don't do that, etc. Well, how do we know when our practice is working? Yeah. And there's another story from the Pali Canon, which I'll just touch on briefly. And we can use these two things uh, to go forward to explore some more. Mahaprajapati, a lady who was the Buddha's aunt, she'd, as it were, renounced the world and she became a nun. And again, she was struggling she came up to the Buddha and she says, like, one of your disciples says the Dharma's this, another one says this, you know, what is the Dharma? Help me, I don't know which teachings to believe in. Yeah? So we've got another list here. The last one of the night, I think. Yeah. And I think these are very, very interesting. Now, I've changed them slightly because the translation I had is quite archaic, so I've tried to capture the spirit, really, of what he says. So the Buddha says this to Mahaprajapati. Of whatever teachings you can assure yourself, these doctrines lead to the calming of negative emotions. Yeah? Spaciousness. Now, 
The word there was detachment, but detachment is such an awful word these days, it means I don't care. So let's look at it more like spaciousness. Yeah? A decrease in the need for worldly gain. Yeah? Living more frugally, yeah? i.e. needing less, yeah? less possessions. Less neurotic need for company. So some people, it's like we need to be around people, otherwise we start feeling really weird about ourselves. There'll be something about if our spiritual practice, if the views we're taking on, the right views, and they're working and we're practicing them, there'll be something about where we're more content on our own, on our own, basically. The release of energy. Yeah? There'll be energy release. There'll be more energy available for us. And then delight in the good, delight in the skillful. Yeah? And then he continues to Mahaprajapati. Of such teachings you may certainly affirm, this is the Dharma. Yeah? This is the practice. This is the awakened one's message. So basically, we can take these two teachings and apply them both to our practice of the Dharma and how we relate to views in wider culture. Yeah? What do the wise think about them? Yeah? A lot of the opinions that we imbibe in society, they're certainly not from the wise. They're from the people who profit, mostly. Do these teachings lead to suffering? Do these views lead to suffering? Whether directly or just by binding us to habitual behaviour. Or when we take on these ideas and practices, do they lead to the more kind of positive results here? That the Buddha says to Mahaprajapati. So, in the end, we can only know by testing out for ourselves. Who we think of as wise, well they may let us down. Yeah? They may not be as wise as we thought. Yeah? We can never know really yeah, until we've been with somebody for quite a long time. This is what the Buddha says in the Pali Canon. You need to live with somebody or be around them for a long, long time before you can know that they're wise. Yeah? So some of the things in the scriptures may not even be the word of the Buddha as well. In fact, I think it's highly likely that a lot of the Pali Canon isn't anything to do with the Buddha, actually. So... In the end, what we can rely on only is by drawing from the teachings and seeing if they lead to growth yeah, by ourselves, yeah? in conjunction with people who we think are more experienced with ourselves. That's important. So we've got those two things. Yeah? So it's interesting, really. In some ways, where as we embark on this kind of path of change, in some ways we're really lucky, aren't we? Because the Buddha's been there before and there's been various enlightened beings throughout the ages who've been there before. So we've got some maps, haven't we? But in some ways, we're also not that different from the Buddha before he became enlightened as well. In some ways, we're kind of scratching around in the dark a little bit as well, aren't we? We're all pioneers in our own light. Because like the Buddha, we have to wade through all the ideologies around us, yeah? And we have to test out the Dharma for ourselves, yeah? And the Buddha, obviously, didn't have the Dharma to test out, so we got one up on him, yeah? So if we have a little look at the Buddha's life, and I'll just be very brief about this because I want to get on to moving on towards the conclusion, really. There's a couple more areas I want to go into. Um, if we look at the Buddha's life, well, before he was enlightened, there was a whole sort of movement away from the kind of thicket of views that he was surrounded by. Yeah? We know, according to the scriptures at least, according to the story, we know that he was kept from anything that would sort of make him question 
the palace life for, by his father. Yeah, anything that sort of led him to existential questioning, he was kept from. You know, we can imagine that he was surrounded by kind of palace politics. We can imagine that he was surrounded by kind of all these pleasures. Yeah, and he recalls in one of the suttas uh, called the Pabajar Sutta how his life was stifled with impurity everywhere like dust. Yeah, this is what he he renounced. So. I wonder how much our lives are kind of stifled with impurity everywhere like dust. Yeah? And he says in the palace, well, he basically says, um, in the palace there was no space really to be himself, yeah? But for the wanderer there is space. He lives out in the open air. So the Buddha sets off, yeah? He breaks away, as it were, from these kind of stifling conditions and he goes out into the open air. But what happens? Immediately he encounters other sorts of ideology. Yeah? But this time spiritual ideology. So it's a bit like he leaves the home life and then what does he come across? He comes across a load of sort of spiritual views as well, doesn't he? So he starts meditating with Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta and they're saying, oh yeah, this is as high as it goes. Yeah, this is the, this is the way. Yeah, there's nothing higher than this. So the, the Buddha to be has to see through that himself he has to sort of he has to test out those teachings for himself and he's not convinced he knows there must be something higher and then there's this whole sort of period where he's practicing this self-mortification isn't there well again that seems mad to us now doesn't it but that was just the way india was in those times yeah the buddha got caught up in that ideology and he had to spend a lot of time untangling himself yeah before he became enlightened yeah and the interesting thing is is it's the story about the Buddha's enlightenment, we hear about these three attacks of Mara, don't we? We hear about the attack of kind of fear and hatred. We hear about the attack of craving. Now the last attack is very, very interesting because the last attack is the part of perhaps the Buddha to be psyche that still is just releasing from group conditioning. Yeah? So apparently, just before the Buddha became enlightened, this voice came into his head and it was like, who are you to be different? Who are you to gain enlightenment? Who are you to go beyond everybody else, as it were, yeah? So it's very interesting, isn't it? Right before enlightenment, it's like the group conditioning, the group ideology is still there, you know, internalised in the Buddha's own psyche, yeah? So I think that kind of says something, really. It says that it's probably the last thing to go, before enlightenment? Maybe, I don't know. So, I just want to finish off now with some... I just want to apply this to our own lives, really, and our own kind of involvement with the FWBO. Because, I suppose, like the Buddha, we've come along here, and we enter into a different set of ideologies, don't we? Yeah? They're a bit different from contemporary society. Well, hopefully they're really, really different from contemporary society if we're being more radical here, yeah, if we're being radical enough. Yeah, but nevertheless, it is ideology, isn't it? So what are we to do with all these opinions that kind of get thrust at us in the Sangha? Yeah? Well, I, w- I want to start off by saying that I've got a lot of confidence, actually, in the Dharma as expressed by the FWBO. I think we're tremendously lucky. Any of you who've read Sangha Ratchet's books... You know, he's incredibly clear. He's given us a very, very clear dharmic path to practice from. So there's a couple of polarities here, I think. 
I think on the one hand, we might as well try out the teachings, hadn't we? We might as well give them a good go. Yeah. But we need to watch out for taking things on blindly as well. Yeah. So we give them a good go, but we don't take things on blindly as well. Yeah. We still need to kind of be checking things out for ourselves. Yeah. And the Buddha made this really, really clear. Yeah. He said, we must be our own light. He said, don't take my teachings as gospel truth. Yeah. Test them out for yourself like gold in a flame. Yeah. Test out the teachings of the FWBO like a gold, like gold in a flame. So there's another polarity that we need to look out for as well. Yeah. It's no good just taking on. This is after a while. Obviously, if you're a beginner, take on what's sort of what's working for you, making you feel good about yourself. I think that's a really sort of important thing to do. But after a while, it's no good just taking the teachings that we like. Yeah. It's no good because that's the ego choosing, isn't it? That's the ego choosing how to go beyond the ego, which it doesn't want to anyway. So, yeah, going to get stuck there. But the other thing is, it's no good sticking to things if they don't work just because they're practices within the FWBO. Yeah, I think this is an important point and it's quite a radical point, really. And I hope I don't get sacked from the order for saying it. But the fact is, is that remember the Dharma is principles and there's a number of practices around and not all of them will work for us. Yeah. So I've got a little story from my own experience and I'd been meditating for about five years and I've been meditating for, because I was so sort of into it, for about two hours a day. I used to get up every morning at quarter to six and I'd meditate between six and eight o'clock and I'd do an hour's mindfulness of breathing and an hour's metabarbana. That's what I did for almost five years and I got so much out of it, you know, it's so good to kind of throw yourself into your practice like that and it was amazing. It was a really wonderful great time for me since then my back's gone and I'm not able to do that anymore and after about four years of sulking I've just about got over it yeah but what started to happen for me was after about four years of doing this I started to have a real intuition inside that I needed just to let go of those practices and to just sit and I'm not even talking about just sitting at the end of a bhavna practice which is what Sangha actually recommends which is what I did before I was talking about just sitting right from the beginning. And I got myself into such a pickle about this. Because when I did the Bhavana practices, I used to get a headache. And there was part of me that was going, Judas, why, you know, you're not being true to yourself here. You know, you know in your heart that you want to be just sitting. And yet you're sticking to these practices. What's up with you? But then when I did just sitting, I started to get really guilty. I was on the ordination trail, as it were, then. I'd asked to be an order member. And I was thinking, oh, no, I'm not being a good... I'm not being a good going for refuge, Mitra. Yeah? So I got myself into a right pickle. Now, I was very, very lucky at the time because Tejananda, I got in contact with him and we started to sort of discuss this. And what he, what he very cleverly reminded me was, well, the Dharma's principle, isn't it? Don't get too stuck on the practices. Yeah? Remember, we've got the principle of integration and positive emotion. Yeah? If you're getting that from your just sitting, why don't you do that? That's your own spiritual intuition. Why not follow it? So I did. And that went on for a couple of years. And it's interesting now because I allowed myself to do that because I sort of, as it were, went outside the system. Yeah, I can now do the mindfulness of breathing and meta again. You know, it's a bit like it's come back to square one. So it's no good kind of just sticking to things because they're in the FWBO book. 
Yeah, so I'll say a little bit more about that because I need to kind of qualify that, yeah? So I suppose what Tejananda did, in a way, was he, he gave me kind of confidence to sort of follow the Buddha's advice to Mahabhajapati. You know, was what I was doing leading to this, even though it was kind of outside of the box uh, a little bit? And what we need to remember is that the Buddha said the Dharma is a raft. Yeah, this is a really important teaching. The practices that we've got, the collection of practices that we've got in the FWBO, they're a little bit like twigs bound together with, with uh, twine, as it were. And we get on them and we start paddling. Yeah, and if we're good practitioners, we're sort of paddling along most days and there's a load of society's ideology over there and we're paddling away a little bit. Oh, no. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah. The problem, is with the, the problem is with this image of the raft is it's a little bit fixed. Yeah, rafts bound together. I think what I've noticed myself is that I think kind of like, obviously, as beginners, we take on the practice, we try them out for a while, yeah? Otherwise, it can lead to restlessness. But I think as our practices develop, yeah, it may well be that a certain stick on that raft isn't useful to us anymore, yeah? So we we let that one go. We might even add another stick onto the raft. So the raft actually changes shape as we're going across, and the danger is if we get a little bit stuck to the raft that we start off with, well, we can get into trouble like I did. Yeah. So just before I finish, I just want to say something about a particular way that people can get themselves stuck. And I want to talk about puja. Yeah. So some people find puja to be really, really amazing. Yeah. It really, really works for them. And some people, and I'm not looking at Chris, <laughs> amongst others, yeah, some people, well, they just don't like puja. Yeah? Now, I know a lot of people, because I, I get to meet up with a lot of people as part of my work, I know a lot of people who do exactly what I was doing with just sitting there. Yeah? They tie themselves into, up in knots because they don't like puja. Now, I'm going to qualify something here. It may be that the fact that we don't like puja is something that actually there's a block in us yeah and it may be that we need to kind of investigate that yeah but actually it may be that we need to just follow principles so what's the principle of puja well the principle of puja is the principle of puja is to increase gratitude to the buddha and faith in the teachings yeah and puja is a wonderful way of doing that yeah and well, it's also a lovely way of practicing collectively, isn't it, as well, of doing things together rather than all meditating with your eyes closed in the same room, yeah? So there's some really lovely things that we can get from puja. But we might well get that from Dharma study, for instance. We might well get this sense of gratitude and confidence in the Buddha's teachings from other practices, yeah? So, you know, remember that principles are more important than practices, Yeah? Apparently when the Buddha died, just before he died, he was lying there and according to the stories there was an untimely rain of blossom over him. Yeah. And one of the, 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 the Buddha's attendants said, oh this is amazing, you know, isn't it great that this is happening? And the Buddha said, well actually I'd much rather people worship me, as it were, by practicing my teachings yeah, rather than sprinkling petals. Uh, all over me. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting that, isn't it? Yeah. 
And Sabuti, one of the, the kind of the sort of leaders of the order, uh, in a pamphlet he, that I read recently, he said something like, the orientation of our practice is much more important than this kind of bhakti, yeah, this kind of spiritual feather that some people have uh, in pujas. Yeah? So I'm not dissing pujas at all. I really, really like them myself. But what I want to sort of get across is, yeah, the Dharma is a collection of tools that we use to work on ourselves. Yeah? In conjunction with the wise, hopefully. So we're not just choosing willy-nilly. But it's a little bit like if a part of the Dharma doesn't work for us at the moment, we can put that down for a bit, yeah? Again, in conjunction with the wise. We can get on with our other things and we can check how it's working with this, yeah? So I think it's really, really important not to get caught up in shuddhism, yeah? Buddhism, not shuddhism. Um, you know, but well, what happens is, what tends to happen is, it's a little bit like with any ideology, if we're not fitting in, yeah, well, we can get a bit kind of worried if we're not ticking all the boxes. So, both within society, yeah, i.e. out there as it were, and I know that's a false distinction, but it's just, just a way of saying something, and within the movement, yeah, what we need to do, as Sangharachita says, is move towards being true individuals. Yeah? So I'm going to finish in a minute, but I just want to tell you a little bit about what a true individual is. So, a true individual is not one of these batteries from the Matrix film. Yeah? It's not somebody who just goes along with the herd. Yeah? And it's very, very difficult not to, isn't it? Because we step outside slightly, and what happens? The herd wants to break, knock us down until we conform. So it's a very radical thing, isn't it? A true individual is not somebody who just does the opposite of what everybody else does. That's an individualist, isn't it? And in a way, they're still kind of relying on the herd to define their opposite behaviour, aren't they? So they're still caught up. They're just doing the opposite of what everybody else does. Yeah? So, unfortunately, yeah, we can't just take one of these pills like in the Matrix. Yeah, that would be quite nice. I wonder who would do it. <laughs> I wonder who would do it, get enlightened now, if you can take this pill. Very difficult, wouldn't it? But a true individual, I suppose, is somebody who questions everything. Yeah? Somebody who doesn't just swallow the values of society whole. And somebody who doesn't come into a spiritual tradition like the FWBO and swallow everything blindly either. Yeah? So it's a very, very interesting, interesting sort of dynamic there, isn't it? So I've been talking a bit about ideology today, and I've been wanting you to get you to, well, to just consider that it's very, very hard to know how you're conditioned in society, yeah? Very, very hard. So we really need to sort of develop some awareness to test out the Buddha's teachings and to, well, just to see if they work. You know, are these things happening that he says to Mahaprajapati? Yeah. And the reason why I've done it in this particular context is, well, I think that in order to just sit effectively, we need to have confidence in doing nothing. And that's going to be very, very, very hard if we're completely caught up in the ideologies of society, which says that we should be doing, doing, doing. 
So we've got Tejananda next week, and then in the third week we're going to be deconstructing the kind of busyness in society, and we're going to—it's going to be a little bit more light-hearted. It's going to be drawing a lot of stuff from Tom Hodgkinson's book, How to Be Idle. So we're going to be—we're going to be looking at how to become anarchists who don't get caught up in the hustle and bustle of people getting anxious about their jobs and trying to be productive. Yeah, how can we step outside that? Yeah. So. And then in the fourth week, we'll be looking at a prevalent ideology in society that is, how would I describe it? It's something like, if something painful comes up, I should run away from it. Yeah? That's a very, very common, it's a very sort of subtle ideology within society. Yeah? And we're going to be looking at these two things in terms of just sitting. So I just wanted to start off by getting you to question everything. Okay, so so that's it. Let's have a break. I don't know what the time is. Does anybody know? Is it nine o'clock? Yeah. Well, I think let's have a break and then we'll go home. Yeah, we'll have a twenty-minute break or so, and uh, I will see you all next week for Tate and Andrew. I hope. Thank you. <laughs>